Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast, and today's guest was Eric Albert. Eric is a Canadian music business veteran who, who's done publicity and, and worked with, you know, every kind of major uh, talent that's worked in Canada over the last 25 years. It's an incredible conversation with somebody who's embedded in the Canadian music industry. Yeah, it was a really great pod to listen to, and I think a part of the reason that all of these music pods are so good to listen to is just you can hear the passion in your voice for the music and it's really just entertaining and enjoyable to listen to not only you but the guests bounce off each other and have really great combos well yeah and that's definitely something that i've taken notice of i, I just get so uh interested in in these stories people who have been able to make a, a career in the music business make their living and doing something that they love. And, and Eric was no different. I mean, he, he knew very early on what he wanted to do. He figured out a way to break into it. He got himself a little bit of a run uh, in the late nineties before the music industry changed um, irrevocably with uh, the advent of the internet. And we talk about all that. We talk about how, how that looked, how he navigated it and how he managed to, to maintain uh, an, an opportunity to to earn a living in in the music industry. What what was your favorite part of the pod? What what was some of the things that you liked the best about it? Yeah, I just enjoyed um, when you guys, especially when you were talking about like your first experience with the internet, and I can't remember the name of the site right now. But you talk about how you went on it and you found all these bands that you'd never heard of, like like Limp Biscuit. You really never heard of them, but thanks to the internet, you were able to find it. It just it shows how different it is. I want to listen to music. I go download it on Apple Music. If you wanted to listen to a new album, you had to go buy it or go to a friend who had bought it. And it's just such a different time. And it's 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 very enjoyable for me to learn about those different times. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the main differences of, of your experience with music at your age and, and where I was when I was at your age, to be certain, amongst many others, for sure. But uh, well, let's just kick it over to Eric. I mean, what a, what an incredible guest he uh, he at first he was like, yeah, nobody wants to listen to me for longer than half an hour, and and uh, we were just about an hour deep before we wrapped up, and uh, and I think anyone who listens to him uh, will agree that he's uh, he's pretty passionate, he's pretty knowledgeable, and he's a lot of fun to listen to. So, without any further ado, let's kick it over to Eric Alper. So good to be here. How are you? I'm doing real well and, and real excited to to sit down and talk to a, a music lifer as we were just chatting a little bit. I've had the opportunity over the course of whatever 130 episodes that we're into this thing to talk to people in the music industry. And uh, the only thing that's the same is nothing's the same about people who've, who've <laughs> had a career. So and nobody knows anything. They They think that they do, but you only can rely based on what you think that you know on the past. And... 80% of what you think you know probably didn't happen in the first place. So we're all we're all guessing every day, which is um, you know, there's definitely some truths and there's definitely some ways to go about doing things. But you know, just when you think that you figured out like it's like Spotify or social media, just when you think that you figured out the algorithm, it changes on you within 24 hours. 
I think the the best thing about the music industry is is you don't have to know everything about anything specific. I, I'm looking at some of the the groups that and the people that you've worked with over the years: um, Shooter Jennings, Jerry Garcia, John Zorn, Honeymoon Suite, High on Fire, Black Label Society. The only thing that uh, that those folks have in common is there's really not a lot in common. So I think <laughs> no matter what you know, somebody's going to find that useful. You you know what they all have in common? Everybody from Barry Manilow to The Wiggles to Guar to Sinead O'Connor and Ringo Starr. They all had an absolute self-belief that they were doing the best thing for them in their lives without any thought process that they were going to be successful. They all had dreams of making it big. They all wanted the money and the fame and the cars. And there was only probably one artist in my entire career that didn't want to be popular. And that was Sinead O'Connor. Um, everybody, but she still wanted to go up there and sing. She still believed that she had something to say. And she still loved the idea of touring and going to hotels and traveling. But she really was at home in the studio and writing and recording. That's what really kind of made her so brilliant is that the rest of the stuff around somebody like that ultimately you can say that destroyed her but if you talk to her or can't now but when when she was around she would say that like tearing up the picture of the pope was the greatest thing that she ever did because it allowed her to move away from the spotlight and not to become a pop star anymore it seems like everybody else that i've worked with they really wanted it more than anybody else out there i can see it i can see it now working with 15 year olds who go viral on social media or get a couple of million followers or streams on spotify or TikTok. i can i can hear it in them how badly they want this or not and it's okay to be a hobbyist in anything that you do but ultimately you better get out of the way because you're just creating and messing with space that somebody else is going to take over for you. Yeah. And I'm I'm not sure that I would have guessed that Guar went into it thinking that they were going to do everything they could to be popular, but uh, there no, they are. But Guar took a look at somebody like an Alice Cooper or took a look at, at somebody like Ozzy Osbourne and, and Black Sabbath and said, we could do that. We can have aliases. We, we I mean, Guar out, out of the stage setup and the costumes could pass for accountants. Like they're, they're not as scary looking and frightening off stage as they are when they're on stage. And believe me, they're on stage. They're like, I mean, they, they don't give out bibs in the first couple of rows for nothing, you know? Um, but they, they wanted it too. I think they wanted to, to show that determination that they were somebody. Um, maybe they got bullied just a little bit too hard in school. Maybe they got ignored just a little bit too much in their neighborhood. Maybe their parents treated them just a little bit worse off than maybe you and I did. But the determination of saying, I'm going to show you what I'm made of is a strong, strong force of nature and will. And Guar has that too. 
Absolutely, and I think that uh, that Brocky came out of out of a, a Virginia was just the type of place that that, right. that you know at that point uh, it's been obviously very uh, fertile over the years. But but before we get too far into that, why don't we talk a little bit about the belief that uh, young Eric had in himself and how he managed to decide that uh, maybe you know hot cross buns on the recorder wasn't for him but but there might be something in the background that uh, that he could do uh, a service he could provide to keep himself connected with all of that yeah it, it really became not necessarily as a service but just wanted that excitement that I saw as a kid um, my grandfather had a bar um, in Toronto called Grossman's Tavern and the bar is still standing but we're not a part of it anymore um, and around that time that I realized that my grandfather had a bar with music, um, I saw the movie American Hot Wax when I was eight years old, and it told the story of the DJ Alan Freed, who coined the term rock and roll music. And it was a docudrama. There were actors playing the roles of the birth of rock and roll, but on the real life, on the screen, at the end of it, it all kind of cumulated into a concert with Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. And the real life Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry played themselves. Um, and during this concert, it was like my world had opened up. I had never heard anything like it. You know, I was a kid who was buying and watching the Osmond show and the Jackson five and Leaf Garrett and the Bee Gees and absolutely nothing wrong with any of those artists. Cause I still adore them and met them and know them. But seeing that on the screen, it was like star Wars to me. It was like, how does this planet exist? And I want to be a part of it. And so I just got a subscription to Billboard magazine a couple of years later. And I was like 12, 13 years old. And I read about the stories of what a record label was doing and how they were promoting this artist and how they were working that artist and what touring was and how much money was to be made on this song and that song. And it wasn't even the money, it was just the business of it. I loved reading about it. And so I knew I couldn't play. That was very clear to me and everybody else around me. I still have no musical talent whatsoever. I still have no interest in going into a studio and messing about. Zero talent for any of that. But I love being around people who created something that always made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when I heard something amazing. And so when I went to university worked at the campus newspaper, had a radio show just by volunteering and just having no clout, no mindset that I couldn't do anything. Um, and then I found out what a publicist does and because I was getting pitched on their shows. So like the Catherine wheel would come into town and do you want to do an interview? And I was like, yeah, why not? And I learned just by reading how to do an interview. I was reading Rolling Stone interviews and Q magazine and Mojo and, and then talking to the Stone Roses and talking to Pearl Jam and talking to all these artists that were kind of building up around that time. Um, I realized that a publicist was a really fun job. I mean, they get to give out music. They get to hang out with artists and make other people feel really happy and work with the media, which I loved reading about. And uh, so the day after I graduated, I started a record label, which became quickly a booking agent, which quickly became a publicity company and been doing that ever every day since 1995. So it wasn't a, a determination. It it was a determination to, to do something with my life because I had no other skills and talent and knew that I loved music. And the publicity side of it came 
fairly easy to me because I knew I stunk at doing bookings and I stunk at managing and I stunk at the record label side of it. But this, the publicity stuff that I knew how to do and just kind of, I was smart enough to realize that I love to do it and dumb enough to realize that I maybe should have gotten out of it when, when things were, when things were lean because I wasn't making any money for a long, long, long time because I wanted to work with independent bands. So I knew that while everybody else was charging a thousand dollars a month for publicity services, um, you know, working the media and stuff, I was charging a hundred dollars because I, I, I wanted to work as many artists as I possibly could without money coming in the way of it. So I ended up working a lot of artists who normally couldn't afford a publicist, but I made my mistakes and kept getting better or worse at my job. And the artists got better. And uh, here we are. 1995 would, would have been an interesting time to come into it because the, the world was very obviously changing by then. Um, you know, the internet wasn't prevalent yet, but the idea of it was something that uh, wasn't you know science fiction yeah. so you really didn't have an opportunity to become entrenched in the old ways like somebody who maybe was in the 70s and 80s and trying to navigate that world as it changed you were still to your point learning how to do your job so when when all these changes started to come and and the idea that physical sales might not be the kingpin in in earnings and stuff like that anymore were you was was that an advantage to you as you started to understand how the the music business was gonna i'm thinking like 2001 when metallica and napster kind yeah. of banged heads at that point you had a few years under your belt you understood what the landscape used to look like but you were also not so entrenched that you couldn't figure out what it was going to look like maybe in a few years what what, what was that formative period of the industry and your career occurring simultaneously like when I first, when I started in 95, I was still using fax machines to send out press releases. My computer was basically like a Commodore 64. Um, and I was downloading pictures of, of Kurt Cobain's crime scenes that took about six and a half minutes to download a photo. But nobody thought that the internet was going to be anything more than, than a fad because the, the beastie boys had one of the very first websites i remember visiting um yahoo was you know up to date it, it they would have like twenty thousand websites registered and then you go on the next day and they would have twenty thousand four hundred or so when it came to music so i don't think anybody really realized that 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 the internet was going to be used as a communication tool other than just a bunch of goofballs having fun whether it was on music or sports or or people creating their own websites in tribute to the band that they loved around 2001 when napster came around and the industry was going from cds to digital which you know uh, looking back in hindsight now it's really easy to say that a lot of people should have realized that the music industry should have gotten on the mp3 train really really quickly which they didn't um but that was a huge time for for me and and I'm sure other publicists and working in the media and working with the media because that was the birth of blogs and MP3s. So you had thousands and thousands of of music fans across North America starting up websites to promote music that they loved, bypassing the traditional system of, well, I guess I'm not a journalist, so I can't 
nobody's going to care about my opinion. Suddenly, places like Pitchfork Magazine and MP3.com and all of these you know, blogs that had maybe a thousand readers, 1500 readers a week were suddenly posting MP3s of remixes that DJs would be doing in their bedroom or acapella versions or releasing stems. And my database at the time was a lot of traditional media outlets because, you know, daily newspapers were still a huge thing. Magazines were everywhere on the newsstand. But then you suddenly had all these blogs start popping up, having just as much and sometimes if not more influence over the record buying public because they were suddenly listening to people their age liking and posting about something rather than a 35-year-old music critic who was old in their eyes. So that was fascinating. So it wasn't really the format that freaked me out because I knew that the formats always had a 20, 25-year life. When you go through vinyl records and then um, the 45 and then eight track tapes, which had a very short life, then cassettes and then CDs and then MP3s. It, it was time for a whole new generation to dictate to the music industry how they wanted to consume music. Once the music industry starts to dictate how people should be consuming music, they get into trouble time and time again. And um, now we have streaming. So it's, it's not, I would say that the format of how people consume music doesn't really matter to me so much, but how people consume the information does a lot. And that's where you start to see the erosion of daily newspapers and magazines and radio stations consolidating uh, the birth of Spotify, the birth of, of streaming services. Podcasts like this would have been completely out of your head to think about 25 years ago. Yeah, I still remember I, growing up in Saskatchewan, I would get Metal Maniacs, um, Mike Gitter and Catherine Ludwig, and and Blabbermouth had a had a like a worry of had a, a column in there every month yeah. of of, and I remember we got the internet, and I went on to Blabbermouth.net, and and like I was reading about like Limp Biscuit and Arc Enemy and like all these bands that were like just uh, words on a page and and yeah. i had no idea and i was relying on all these people to describe them to me and then we read on there that rob helford was gay and we didn't believe it because it was like is this vetted like this is this internet thing and it's quoting rob helford talking right. about it and, and none of us knew what to believe because it was all so new but there we were reading blabbermouth.net about Rob Halford's sexuality. Because you were because you were in the same area as I was, where when you you know, with without without kind of going back for in history, it took almost three weeks for the death of Jim Morrison to reach the major newspapers in America when he died in, in Paris. Because there was no, I mean, telegram, it was only telegrams. I mean, there were there were phones, but certainly, you know somebody like him would disappear for a while. Certainly nobody was telling the media about it. So you only knew what anybody was doing maybe on a weekly basis. If the, your favorite magazine would happen to write about it at the time, that's why MTV and much music just blew everybody's mind. Cause for the very first time, our generation got to see on demand what people look like and using 
music news as a very serious option of information. Because Rolling Stone did that before. And Spin Magazine was still like 10 years away. But, you know, Cream Magazine and um, um, Trouser Press in the UK, they were starting to kind of see music as a way of political influence and socio-influence and economic influence and writing about deeper issues. It wasn't really until the video age where we took it very, very seriously because everybody's eyes was on the same thing. So, so to your point, I guess, you know, you, you quickly understood that it was the information, the flow of information that the, the internet was, was shaping less so than maybe the way people consumed music, especially at first. So when you were, you were mature enough into your career that you understood that, that the publicity was what you were going to do. And, and that was what you were good at. And you were trying to, you know, figure out a way to make a career out of this. Um, and uh, how are you, you know, finding your clients and as you, you know, you've, you kind of listed some, some pretty heavy names, but maybe Catherine wheel and Pearl jam at the time weren't, and you, you weren't, you know, when you were hitching your pony to those wagon or your wagons to that pony, you, you had no idea what, was actually going to happen. You were just along to, to yeah. for the ride. You believed in it. How, how long did that take before you were like, okay, this is absolutely what I'm doing. And, and, and people were coming to you and you were, you know, you had a, an agency and you were busy with it. Yeah. I, um, maybe about, um, maybe about two years, two and a half years after, after I started the company, um, with, with my partner at the time, um, I got a job working for a record label. And the record label at the time had three artists. They had Patricia Conroy, which was a country artist, uh, the Nylons, the acapella group, and Nickelback's first EP. And Nickelback was starting to break onto Canadian radio, but Chad Kroger's mother was still the one that was calling up radio stations, berating them, asking them why they're not playing their son. So that was still indie, but Patricia Conroy was having hits on country music radio. So when we changed distributors a couple of months after that from a company called Select to Koch, it wasn't that long after where the president of Koch Canada said to me, I've got an idea that we have all these American and UK labels that we do distribution for, meaning we only store their stuff and then we ship them to the record stores based on the demand. We have a couple of, of marketing people. They had like 10 or 12 marketing people working and they were responsible for taking out ads and exclaim magazine and taking the budget on behalf of the record label and telling the record label where they think that they should be spending the money. Distributors never had a publicist working for them. And the president of, of Koch Canada, Dominic Zarka came up with the idea of, well, let's get a publicist because a will have a little bit of an advantage over maybe getting new labels to come to us, but B we can actually start to sell more records. If we have somebody to take care of the wiggles when they're on tour in Canada or working a Bob Geldof or working Sinead O'Connor or working all of these artists. And at the time Koch was distributing like 400 different record labels at the time, everything from who to world music to Smithsonian folkways, um, uh, they were, they had hopeless records, which had, um, a whole bunch of Amer amazing punk bands on there. Um, victory records, which had taking back Sunday and catch 22 and Thursday, um, metal blade and, um, all of these amazing labels, but nobody was working them in Canada. We were four per Canada was 4% of the world market 
to these American labels. So they were like, here's, you know, whatever, dude, just go and do whatever you want to do. And then we just became a bigger company because um, not only did, did I have the ability to work media and get them reviews and interviews and radio play, but that got them a little bit better record labels more and more because now we were operating at like a record label mentality doing marketing and now doing publicity. I'm not going to say that it was me that did it, but certainly having the foresight to treat Canada like the market that it should, that, that kind of launched everything into me working a lot of the artists. And then when I left in, in the company, after it got bought out by entertainment one, I was with entertainment one for a number of years. Um, but that's when everything kind of changed when HMV closed their stores, or at least the rumors were they were going to close their stores. So the distribution of music, which was the be all the end all changed dramatically. Now we weren't necessarily distributing records because they were those labels were distributing to Spotify themselves. They were the ones that were uploading their own music to iTunes worldwide. The music industry stopped carving out, this is Canada, and this is Japan, and this is Germany. Now it became, we're going to upload this new album to iTunes and have the entire world take a listen to it. So that's when it kind of changed. And then when I went off on my own, um, when I saw the kind of writing on the wall, a lot of the artists that I was working with at the time of at Entertainment One came on to work with me. So artists like 5440 and Andy Kim and Gordon Lightfoot and Bruce Coburn, um, artists I'm still kind of working to this day. So it's it's really uh, kind of a, a fortuitous um, situation in that there was still a need for for part of what you were doing, and you'd been around long enough, and and your reputation was as such that. And like, I mean, 5440, Bruce Coburn, like, you know, Gordon Lightfoot, these are not um, anywhere in the world. These are not unknown people. These are heavy, heavyweight names that you're able to continue to work with and, and maybe feel out how you're going to, you know, continue to flesh out a business. You still have those people that are keeping your lights on for you. I guess you had enough runway between 95 and then to, to, to establish yourself. Yeah, it was really a matter of, um, you know, when I started to, when I when I brought bands to um, places like Can AM, um, radio stations like AM six forty and Sirius XM and stuff, um, it, that was amazing, and, and I was just doing publicity. None of this existed. None of the social media stuff. I I was late to the game for Facebook. I was late to the game for MySpace. I didn't have a, fa a MySpace page until maybe seven months before the company kind of shut down and disappeared and <laughs> kind of, you know, new things popped up again. So social media wasn't really anything more than a personal tool to let anybody out there who cared know about what was going on within the company in terms of the artists that were releasing music and stuff. Um, and then one day I got offered... I got asked to do a segment on Canada AM. This is around maybe 2014 or so. Um, no, probably about maybe about 2009, 2010, um, to do a segment on on Christmas music that was being released that year and box sets. And the producer asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said no. Like, why would I want to do it? First of all, I work in the industry, and nobody from the industry talks about the their own industry because they like to keep those separate. And also, you know, I got no secrets to tell. 
I'm not going to tell anybody how things are done. So it it so they said no no, no just just call up the other publicists in the in the industry and come on and talk about it. So I was like okay, so I did and I did the segment and I'm sure very badly. But I brought like the new Bob Dylan box set and I brought the new Stones and the new Beatles and just talked about it. Just like I'm talking to you now, just really enthusiastic about talking about music and probably going over my time of four and a half minutes. And and that was it. Uh, and then they kept asking me to come on to talk about what was happening in music. And I had a very fine line that I realized that I I, I couldn't fall down or cross was like, I could be in the media to talk about music, but I also work in the industry. So I have to be very careful about not talking about anything negative because maybe, you know, one day I'm going to be working with that artist. So I stayed away very, very early on from anything controversial, anything negative, and just kind of be this positive person that can go on and talk about it. And that led to getting a radio show on Sirius XM. Again, like when they asked me, it was like, no, nobody wants to hear me talk. I don't even want to hear myself talk. Why on earth would anybody tune in? He said, no, just, just go and just bring in your friends, bring in your artists, bring in people that you know. And around that time, that's when Twitter started to explode. That's when I had to get a Facebook fan page out of all ridiculousness because I had too many friends on Facebook. And it just kind of exploded from there, just talking about music. That the key thing about all of it which is which is what I tell people in business now when they ask about social media and stuff. It's like, it's okay to talk about other things in your business that's not just about you. Nobody really wants to hear about you. What people want to know is things that they can bring back and relate to your life. Me talking about Taylor Swift's success on a segment is never about Oh yeah, so she's got one point nine billion dollars worth of concert grosses, you know, and will overtake the Rolling Stones next year. It's all about how that story became a thing in the first place, how she treats her fans, how the concert industry is going, how merchandise plays into all of it. It's just it's like like American Hot Wax and like the the books I was reading, it was never about the song. It was all about what else was happening around them to make that song a success. And that's what interests me. So that's where, you know, that's where we got to now. Well, and, and that's the beautiful thing about the music industry is, is the facts or, or as much as we know about things occur, but everything else around them is so subjective. I mean, you, you, you don't have to have a negative or positive take on Van Halen versus like David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar everyone knows what occurred. You can just talk about it. People find it interesting. You'd sprinkle in some of your industry knowledge and, and, and people want to hear it. Right. And it's, it doesn't have to be um, you revolutionizing anything. You can just go on your Sirius XM radio show. And uh, you know, I just uh, recently had Paul from, from the tragically hip on, mm. and he taught, he talked about a, a couple of things about how Gord, you know, created and how they created together. And, and, you know, people know Gift Shop. They understand that song. It means yeah. something different to everybody. And then he talks about how they put the little, he called them tricky tricks in them. And now mm -hmm. when you listen back, you hear how how the, the chord progressions change a little bit. And they do that to keep each other interested. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know what I mean? And now I know that. And I get to, when I hear it, I'm sitting around, I can talk about it. It doesn't have to be revolutionary. But it, but it's, also, it's just No, no, but it's also 
it's also thinking about the the art of collaborating, right? So, like on the radio show, I I really I I I the only rule that I had, if anything, if I had any rules, it was just I didn't want to go too inside baseball too much. Meaning right. that I knew that ninety nine percent of the people, as big of an artist as you can have on your show or on my show, it was. I knew that 99% of the people were never going to listen to the brand new album of this artist. I knew that, you know, uh, the most people are listening to it in their car. They just want to have a good time or on the app and they don't want to think too much. There's other people that do that so much better than I. Rick Rubin can talk about the daily life of being in the studio. And he has a very specific audience that, that loves to hear about the guitar tones and how they got this. And, but it's really about the creative process of it. You just telling that story about, about Paul from the hip. I mean, that's how, you know, five guys from the same city can land in the same world together and still want to have fun about that. Cause when you dig deep into a, a band or an artist's career that has been established, it's like, why? So I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. So, uh, like just before I hopped on here, um, uh, I just did uh, an interview with Gavin from Gavin Rodale from Bush and actually worked with them for a couple of albums. And we were talking about, you know, the, the art of, you know, the art of fame, because to somebody like Gavin, to somebody like Chris Robinson from the Black Crows, to somebody who really has a good time being famous and does it very, very well. I want to know what that's like. And I'm not looking for the gossip because again, TMZ does that very, very well. But what I want to know is what happened to your head when you start to go down a little bit, when your sales don't hit number one anymore. But Paul talking about those little things shows me that they were fun and that for all of being on a postage stamp and being the leaders of, of the the you know the movement of holding up a mirror to who Canada was and is and could be there were still five guys in the studio who liked to have fun and that to me that's what kind of still turns me on to here yeah though that's as a music fan that's that's the holy grail and yeah. then just as as somebody who's you know aware of what they do that was that was something else that we talked about how you know Bill Burr he he can only do his his jokes once. He goes out, yeah. he, he does his tour, he does his Netflix special, Isn't that and, wild? It's, and it's and, gone. And you but, can't do it again. But then for the hip, they could play forever, and people are Every still going to play play Little Bones, play people New Orleans. Get mad if you don't do your hits. I I, think yeah. I, saw, I saw Jerry Seinfeld once in concert, and about fifteen minutes before his set ended, he said, "All right." You know, I'm going to give you what you what you might have came here to see or whatever or listen. And he did like some of the greatest hits. He, he did like the whole, you know, how can Pop-Tarts be fresh when they were never considered fresh in the first place? And all these really amazing lines. And people still laughed as hard as the first time that they heard him say that because it was being there and seeing the body do that joke in his way. It's always astonishing to me that comedians can never get away with, with doing that. They can't go out on the greatest hits tour, but yet, oh my gosh, how many times did we watch Eddie Murphy's raw or, <laughs> or a, a Netflix special? Like 
it it's it's kind of wild to me how you're one and done baby you can't do that joke ever again so when you're when you're working with people now i mean the accolades i just in 2023 alone i think it said you worked with 14 uh juno nominated um artists and and i mean you have your your resume is incredible some of the like the names of people virtuosos um but then you also have these people that are like uh i think of john prine and steve earl that you know are these these artists these storytellers um nothing about their music is is so technically mind-blowing when you're working with somebody whose art is that versus um a zach wild who's a, a shredaholic you know guy what's what's the like how do you approach those are are they just artists and, and you got to figure out what makes them tick and they're all kind of quirky or do you kind of go a john prine versus a i don't know gordon lightfoot it 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 is maybe a little bit different terrifying all of them <laughs> terrifying you you don't want to be a dork around them or or think that you're uncool we still all have that look i can't speak for the other publicists because i'm sure that you know, some of them will say, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, it, they're all different and they are all different. Hanging out with Zach Wilde, where he's calling everybody buddy and just animal from the Muppets come to life in a beautiful, amazing thing. You just don't want to forget that you're there to do a job and that you're not friends with them. They didn't bring you backstage because you're Eric Alper. They brought you backstage because you're working for them and it's your job still no matter who you're working with to make sure that that what they want to say and what they want to get across about their new album or new single or new band um comes across in the press release or in the bio and then you just let the media kind of do their thing i'm not one of these publicists and i could never be there's only there's only one or two artists i've worked with that it was a very you cannot talk about this I need you to really focus on this. And that was, I, I think that might've only been Ringo Starr where you don't bring up the Beatles in an interview unless he does. And then you only can kind of follow up that with a follow-up question with regard to that. You can't start asking him about what it's like during Sgt. Pepper if he's not bringing it up. But everybody else though, whether you're a brand new artist with one single and one video, you still have something that you want to get across. In the beginning for an artist, when I'm working with somebody new, it might be a little bit easier to work with them and hone really what they want to say, or maybe, you know, bring their 15 ideas that they want to get across in a press release down to three, because nobody's going to read anything longer than a page these days and kind of going from there. Um, but no, at working and hanging out with a John Prine, you just want them to think that you're cool, <laughs> you know, well, and, and, and knowing full well that all I'm thinking about for the first couple of moments is I bought your album. I saw your video. I saw you in concert. You're the coolest or one of the coolest people on the planet. And, you know, when I, you know, Joan Jett, you know, you look at Joan Jett and all you can, all I could think about was you're Joan Jett. Like, you're not even real to me. You're you're a concept of something that I have enlisted into my brain often since 1982, since I Love Rock and Roll came out, that I have followed your career long before we started working together because you're Joan Jett. 
and then you kind of relax a little bit. Um, but it, you never, I think that's kind of why I haven't lost my marbles is because I've never really gotten over the fact that I'm still a fan of all these people and want to do right by them. You just want to please them just like a kid and their parents. You just want to please everybody. Well, one of the things I want to be respectful of your time here. I, one of the things that I really wanted to talk about was your use of, of social media currently. I mean, I mean, your Twitter feed is, uh, is very engaging. You, you post all these incredible questions and and you make people think about music and and i think that's the best the best thing you can do when you're mm. in a role like yours is, is you pose these questions um the, the couple of the ones that I, I wrote down here is what's what's the perfect song what's a song that you heard that you just in your mind is the perfect song and then you said what's a song that's still play, that's played to death but still excites you when you hear it yeah. And and I think of hearing a song on the radio in the grocery store at my age, you know, the songs that I, you know, heard growing up that well, we're both out. 29, so, you know. Yeah, right? <laughs> so they're they're everywhere, they're ubiquitous in the world and then I think of like in a car and and at a concert and all these things and the the next thing I know, Eric, I've spent 10 minutes thinking about your Twitter post and and I may never actually type my answer in there, but man, uh, you you were like the shepherd to this incredible journey, this in ten minute break in my day, <laughs> where I I had to figure out. And I'll it's still so I, I'm a Dave Grohl uh, stan. I still think that uh, Everlong is is the greatest rock and roll song ever written. We can take that offline and and we can have an hour long <laughs> conversation. Um, That's but it's nice. But it's also the song that that is overplayed to to forever. Um, yeah. And it still excites me when I hear it. When I'm scrolling through social media, you see people playing it. And I still sit there and listen to everyone's rendition of it. And and it's like, man, you you do that with with your Twitter feed, with with your social media. And because it's, what... it's never about me. Like, and and I quickly realized that. And it wasn't some sort of genius moment, but it was all about that going back to the whole the music industry gets into trouble when they start to dictate how people should consume things. If all I did was post about my favorite bands or what, while working at the record label, I'm sure that that certain people would want me to keep on the straight and narrow of only writing about and talking about the band that I was working or the band that we had on the label. It'd be incredibly boring because nobody wants to because there are again other places to do that if you're a fan of zach wilde you're not going to go to zach wilde's publicist that's going to tell you the exact same thing you're going to go to zach wilde's feed so the ability for me to post questions and kind of get noticed that way it was never ever about me it was never about me scraping data it was never about me trying to figure out how to pigeonhole anything it was because everybody loves to talk about themselves and it's cool to see what peter frampton's answer to that or jason isbell or you know robbie robertson writing about that or his stories because you you know look you can fight to the death about everlong i'll show you six people on twitter that would hate that song and it's okay to argue about that but at least we're not talking about donald trump you know what i mean at least i'm i know all i wanted to do on social media was be be a place where people can go and just talk about something that is so important and yet so unimportant at the same time, which was music, because everybody's got an opinion on it. So when I share photos 
of classic artists or when I talk about getting old, um, you know, in a slightly humorous way or when I post memes about getting old. That stuff to me is the truth. But it's also my ability to carve out a really super small corner of stuff where people can go and not have to worry about feeling downtrodden and beaten because there's enough of out there on social media that will do that. So in this moment, briefly, I'm going to make it about you. What is the perfect song? What is the perfect song? I love, um, I love Life's What You Make It by Talk Talk. I think that to me is a song that that and shout by tears for fears. And I've been to both bands and there's plenty like a day in the life by the Beatles. Like it, it boggles my mind that human beings created this from a blank piece of tape. But those two songs, I can't comprehend how to even start the creative process of creating songs like that. So I'm going to go with life's what you make it by talk, talk and shout. And I've had, I've had the pleasure of, of having both of them. And I worked with Tears for Fears um, for a couple of tours. And, oh, wow, the geeky questions I got to ask that band. I was like a 14-year-old kid in a candy store. It was like, how did you get that sound? And they would tell me how they got the sound in the beginning of Shout. And it was meaningless to me because I didn't know on earth what they were talking about. But how they were able to you know, had these little happy accents in the studio. So I love those two songs. And it's still, look, I don't know if you can play an instrument, but all of this is magic to me. It's magic still <laughs> how they do that. Dave Grohl is so genius because he, I think he learned a lot from Kurt Cobain, who learned from the Pixies, who learned from the Beatles, who learned from, you know, Skiffle, who learned from the blues, who all learned from somebody but Dave Grohl has the absolute knack of being like Phil Collins back in the 80s. You knew Phil was going to come up with a classic song. Even if you didn't like it, you knew it was going to start off quiet and then get to the chorus, which was going to stay in your mind forever. And then he was going to go a little bit louder. And then the chorus was going to be a little bit louder. A perfect bridge and then ended off with the chorus. And that's it three and a half minutes, you were never going to forget it. Dave Grohl had that in him where just a brilliant storyteller and a brilliant songwriter and a cool guy to boot. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I remember All of reading. That matters. I remember reading about uh, before um, whatever album All My Life came out and he had talked yeah. about having this song where the last line in the, in the, in the, the last word in the line is the first word in the line, the next line. And, all my life I've been searching for something. Something never comes, never leads to nothing, nothing satisfied. And I'm just like, okay, there it is. Like he knew what he was doing. He 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 talked about it. He came to him. He wrote a song uh, and it was catchy as hell. And it was awesome. And I was like, that's when I was like, I got to look a little closer. He's not just Nirvana's drummer. And that's when I kind yeah. of had my aha moment yeah. with Dave Grohl. He's a keen student of, of songwriting, right? Like it, you know, whenever I, I used to do songwriting panels and talks, you know, and it's such a cliche and it's so easy for me to say because I don't write songs, but it's like, it's all in the Beatles catalog. 
Try writing a song with the chorus first. Try writing a song where you don't even get to the chorus until the seventh minute. Try writing a seven minute song. Try writing a song and then doing a four and a half minute outro, repeating something like La 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 for a sing-along like Hey Jude. It's all in the grooves of that and the the upside downness of songwriting. It's all there. Dave Kroll is like that too, where he can, you know, he wants to do a 27-minute song like he did like last year. Go for it. That's his revolution number nine. You know, that that his that's his day in the life where it takes you on a ride. And then you better believe that he can create a 90-second song that'll just blow you away too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And and then he's a great dude, to your point. Uh, he's the guy bringing these kids up uh, on stage to play Monkey Ranch and giving them a moment of a lifetime uh, that's everywhere on social media. And now you're just like, okay. And brings his mother on tour with them. Like, How great is that? Up. It's all good, you know? <laughs> So I, 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 like I was saying, I want to be respectful of your time. So I, I, I typically end the the pods with asking, asking our guests um, what their vision of success is today, what it was when they were starting out on their current path, and and the factors that have maybe helped them make the changes in those visions and and, and what they view as success. Um, my vision of success is exactly what it was when I first started the company all those years ago and even goes so far back as being arted or the Excalibur newspaper and having a show on CHRY at three o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, when I guarantee you, nobody was listening. It was doing what you wanted to do and, and getting to do it the next day. It's, it's really, it's still my, it's still my vision during COVID. You know, when everything got shut down in that, that in March or, or, you know, early April, you know, it happened really fast, right? Like you, you, you heard these people starting to get sick and it, you know, the numbers were creeping up and then the NBA shut down and then the planes got shut down and then the concerts and live nation pulled everybody off the road. Um, I went outside and I had a little bit of a scream. And then I went back inside and then I emailed all the artists I was working with. And it was about maybe 40, 45 artists that were on the roster and I emailed all of them. And I said, look, I don't know what's going to happen right now. We could all die um, or we could all get through this somehow. But I know one thing is certain that people are going to need music because music in a time of, of hardships is always it, entertainment gets people through music helps people it's a healing tool it always was it's medicine so if you guys if you all keep creating music i'm going to be here working it so i'm not going to go away and suddenly all of these artists started going online and i was working with them coming up with ideas for concerts and and i was like you know, if you guys want to collaborate, like, let me know. I'll, I'll tell you the other people I'm working with and let's go do online shows together. I don't know who's going to listen or watch. I know you probably won't be making any money off of it, but you can still create. That's what still keeps me going. It's every single day getting to, to talk to people that I admire in the art of doing music and talking to people in media who love what they do too in the eye of an industry that is kind of struggling, you know? Um, I love still finding little pieces of, of, 
you know, I love finding artists or artists finding me and then connecting them with their stories to tell and then finding media outlets that, uh, that cover them. That's the biggest success. That's what keeps me going. So in any business, in any rule of life, this is, um, it, it really does come down to, I know everybody doesn't get to do what they want to do. And if you do get to do what you do, consider yourselves lucky in every aspect of it. The color of your skin, your race, your age, your economic stature, what your parents did, how many brothers and sisters you have, your ability in life to do things. I was lucky to be able to go to the movie theater at eight years old to go see American Hot Wax. I knew that because I saw it at my at, at the cottage that we had up in Barrie, Ontario, just north of Toronto. Without the cottage, I'm not seeing that movie. So the economic standards that my my that we had being lucky helped me on that path. Nothing happens in a vacuum. We're all good or bad, have this luck and wherewithal to do what we do, but you can change it. Absolutely. There, there are people that you know, that you talk to. There are people that I work with and that I talk to have come from the furthest places of being on stage in front of 40,000 people. That you, if you were to tell them the day before they signed their record deal, before that moment that something broke, you one day are going to have a gold album on your wall, they would have called you crazy and nuts. You know, if you were to talk to a Sinead O'Connor at age 15 when she's getting beaten up by the Catholic Church every day, one day you are going to revolutionize and change people's lives by tearing up a picture of the Pope on a nationally broadcast show, she would have thought you were crazy. If you were to tell John, Paul, George, and Ringo that one day that you were all going to form together based on the fact that a train was going to be at the station at a specific time that George Harrison was going to come on that train and meet two of you, crazy. So you're a victim of your circumstance by anything. So make the best of it. You know, um, it, it's so it's so easy for me to say that, but I am absolute living proof that a short guy of five feet with glasses and hearing aids and braces and shaving at 12 years old, the ugliest mofo that you'll ever see on the planet was able to do anything to bend his will to make something happen was, and getting me on TV was look I'm, I'm proof that if you follow what you love to do you can do it you can do it there's no rules there's no rules you don't need a university degree you don't need a college education you don't need experience just go and do it and you're gonna suck you're gonna suck suck less than the next person the second act podcast would like to thank ben sound for the intro and outro music happy rock we would also like to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, and give us any feedback you can. Thanks for listening.